I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy, and hopefully to have some fun while we're doing it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with the biggest drug news stories from the last week and a few important things to look forward to. Then after a shout out to one of our favorite nonprofits, we'll be talking about the science of nitrous oxide, how it affects the human body and some of its risks in the second installment of September's Drug of the Month. Then next up is our roundtable discussion on analyzing legal marijuana markets with guests Andrew Livingston and Adam Orens. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if you're not using that knowledge to improve the world. So thanks for joining us for episode 10 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we discuss a few big stories from the past week and let you know about a couple of things to look forward to. So last week we had our producer Tyler subbing in, but Rochelle is now back from her trip to Peru. So Rochelle, do you want to start things off with our first story? Good to be back, Sam. Uh, So for this first story, um, it's got a little international angle. Mexico is allowing for the first importation of medical cannabis oil into their country. Um, This is a case similar to many we've heard here in the United States. Um, It concerns a little eight-year-old girl, Gracielda Elizalde, who suffers from a rare epileptic disorder that causes her hundreds of seizures per day. So there's a court case about whether she would be able to access medical cannabis oil or CBD oil, um, which is the only therapeutic treatment option left to her and which has successfully, though anecdotally, treated hundreds of children with similar conditions here in the U.S., as we've heard, you know, in multiple news stories throughout the past uh, year or so. Mm -hmm. So earlier this week, the federal government in Mexico signed a petition allowing for the single exception to their very strict drug trafficking laws to let Grace's parents import medical cannabis for her treatment. Um, they, They did leave the possibility open for signing further exemptions if other patients came forward with Uh, similarly uh, drastic cases and also had legitimate medical prescriptions. So there are only two conditions for Grace's legal protection um, under this exemption. The first is that she does have to have a prescription from a doctor, and the second is that she obtained the cannabis from legal sources. So um, there are four possible countries the medicine could be imported from uh, here in the U.S., uh, the U.K., Canada, or Israel. So it'll actually be up to the judge um, overseeing the case to to decide which variety or which country produces the cannabis extract that's most appropriate to treat Grace's medical condition. That's really interesting. And I mean, I feel like this opens up a kind of interesting situation where if the U.S. is requested by Mexico to send them cannabis oil, which the federal government would be the one interfacing with them, you know, not like the state of Colorado or something. And so... I wonder if this would start some kind of precedent of us of us exporting it, or do you think they'd refuse? 
I know. I mean, this is kind of this is kind of crazy on so many levels because, like you said, it would be the federal government, and it's fascinating to think about the the requirement that the courts have set that the cannabis be quote unquote legally purchased. Um, because even if they got it from Colorado or a legal source in Colorado, it would of course remain a federally illegal purchase that the Mexican, you know, not, I guess not Mexican government, but you know. The, that the Mexican government authorized to for, for the patients to obtain. And the other thing is that it's still, I mean, it's still federally illegal to prescribe cannabis in Mexico. So however Grace Grace's parents obtained the prescription would still put the doctor in jeopardy. So there's still, I mean, like other than the crazy international precedent this might set for, for cannabis um exports across borders there's still a lot of internal gray areas um Mm -hmm. similar to here in the u.s yeah especially with all of our cbd only laws that seem like they're going to be pretty ineffective but hopefully that they will actually be able to get this medicine to her so for our next story uh this one's about uh, burning man actually so burning man concluded on labor day uh, so while there are certainly some people who wish they were still there, there's actually, unfortunately, a small group of people who are stuck in Nevada against their will, and that's those people who were arrested at the festival. And so New- the New York Times had a really good story on Friday looking into the after effects of Burning Man on the judicial system, saying that police gave out more than 600 citations and arrested over 40 people during the event, uh, many of them for drug crimes, though not all. And so while people being arrested for drug possession is a tragedy, especially when they're using responsibly during an event like this that, you know, holds responsibility and harm reduction in such high esteem, uh, this is actually a little bit better than past years. So one lawyer in the story said that he normally handles about 60 cases per year. Uh, And so since there was only about 40 this time, it was a roughly 30 uh, 30 drop. And so while it seems like it's at least partly due to evolving uh, perspectives among law enforcement, since one sheriff was quoted as saying, uh, we treat the Burning Man travelers the same as all of our other visitors, and I did not see a need to increase our enforcement efforts during Burning Man. So this is actually uh, some pretty heartening news. This is actually, I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to me that there are so many arrest cases overall coming out of Burning Man, but I feel like it's one of those such widely known festivals that I guess part of me was still surprised they're enforcing drug laws in and around this annual gathering. I guess it there. I mean, it's been come to be accepted as such a mainstream event in so many ways. Yeah, I I guess it it was just surprising to hear that there's there's such a large volume of arrests and not just the most egregious cases. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it is especially good that it was a bit of a drop this year just because, of course, this, this festival's in Nevada, which has really harsh laws that includes, you know, mandatory minimums for simple possession of a lot of different drugs. So there, there is still definitely a lot of improving to do. But I feel like this drop may have also been partly due to uh, the work of activists there, kind of like the Zendo Project, who are actually going to be having on as guests for our roundtable discussion next week. But since they're working there on the ground to be helping people who are having bad trips um, and, and guiding them through that kind of experience, I feel like that's probably a, a really big help because, you know, if people are having a bad experience, it might be a lot more obvious that they're on drugs and might attract police attention, which brings it to the, the rest of their group or something. So I wonder if that actually did have kind of a, a good stop in law enforcement effect. Mm-hmm. A harm reduction in other ways, too, not just as far as the... Uh, physical or psychological experience of the substances. Uh, So in our next story, this is about a study that was released last week, uh, finding that 
quote, illegal drug injection sites um, in the city of Vancouver are actually saving taxpayer dollars. So um, Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada, is home to Insight, the only legal supervised drug injection site in North America. Um, but it's an open secret amongst the harm reduction community in Vancouver that local activists will occasionally operate illicit safe injection sites. So in addition to Insight, they have other non-sanctioned, uh, like underground safe injection sites also throughout the city. Um, and what these safe injection sites do, for those who haven't really heard of this concept before, is both allow users to exchange uh, clean needles, just like clean needle exchanges, um, but also have a safe space for the use of intravenous drug use, um, whether they require assistance or you know, support, just to make sure that it's in a safe environment. Um, and some of these illegal, non-sanctioned uh, safe injection sites will actually operate for months before being discovered and then shut down. Um, and then the recent study that was published in the Health and Justice Journal last week found that these unsanctioned sites actually represent significant public cost, uh, public health cost savings to BC taxpayers by reducing the transmission rates of diseases like Hep C and HIV AIDS. So a single unsan unsanctioned facility can operate on just $97,000 per year um, and prevents 30 new cases of HIV and 81 new incidents of hepatitis C which represents approximately $4.3 million wow. in annual savings. Yeah, I mean, this just reminds me of uh, one of the stories we reported on last week was a study about D.C.'s uh, needle exchange program saving millions and millions of dollars by, by preventing all of these additional HIV infections. So it's good to see that that's also being done in uh, British Columbia. But it seems that if, since they're having so much success, they should probably just go ahead and sanction these. Yeah, I know. That's what I, <laughs> I mean, I think that's part of the argument, right? Is mm -hmm. that like you shouldn't be fighting, you know, or wasting additional resources fighting these centers when they're actually saving money. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they're saving you know, money it, on the, the infections, saving money, but saving then wasting lives. it on, uh, yeah. on, on shutting these people down. On enforcement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So another another paradox of the war on drugs. <laughs> So what do we have for our last story, Sam? All right. So our next one is unfortunately uh, not good news. Uh, and this one is that Watchdog.org has reported that DEA agents have been impersonating medical board staff in order to gain access to personal health records without a warrant, which is thankfully now being challenged in court. So this all happened in Texas, where the DEA has been sifting through countless medical records in an apparent attempt to find doctors and patients to prosecute. So according to this story, yeah, it, it, I, I couldn't really believe this when I was reading it, but according to the story, there's actually been a few different tactics that the DEA, DEA has used. Um, and one of the kind of freakiest ones is just that one uh, a DEA agent or a group of them will accompany a Texas Medical Board staff member. Uh, and these people are actually allowed to access patient records since it's the regulatory agency that oversees them. But they accompany this person to a doctor's office where uh, all of the DEA agents stay silent, but the board member just says, I'm with the Texas Medical Board and I need to review your records. So the doctor's staff goes, OK, assumes that the, you know, two or three people that they have with them is also, you know, in the same group and escorts them back to look at the records. And then the DEA agents just go through everyone's records. And this is, uh, in one case, this was stopped because then the, uh, I, I think the receptionist had alerted the doctor and they got their lawyer to come in and, and catch them in the act of it. But the DEA is claiming that there isn't any wrongdoing. Uh, the medical board staff is kind of playing dumb with all of this. 
And um, and when this doesn't work or when they do get turned away, uh, they're actually just sending administrative subpoenas, which is a document that doesn't require the approval of a judge, uh, to doctors demanding records. And most of the time they comply. Uh, so this definitely seems to be a violation of HIPAA. And if not, it's certainly a violation of the, the spirit of that law and patient privacy. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, my first reaction was, how is this not a blatant violation of HIPAA? Like, if anyone can just walk in with a doctor and just silently, like, not say anything and be like, yes, I'm just a third third party witness. Like, yeah, uh, it does seem to be a, a total blatant violation. I'm, like, completely baffled by mm-hmm. this. And, and actually, in, in Oregon last year, uh, their Supreme Court ruled that an administrative subpoena is not enough to do this and that they did actually need a warrant, but... Unfortunately, this only applies in Oregon because they have a, a stronger patient protection laws than the federal government does. So that doesn't apply in Texas. And uh, in Texas, as far as the, the subpoenas goes, have actually uh, uphold, upheld that. But the going in with with doctors or, or regulators just seems so, I mean, so outside the spirit of the yeah. law. I mean, other than the violation, like the HIPAA privacy violations, which are, uh, you know, civil law, I, I don't see how this is not a violation of the fourth constitution also, because there's no probable cause to search any of these. Like, obviously, what they're going in for is to dig for information. That means they don't have any specific reason to think any of those patients or doctors are suspected of illegal activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is essentially, you know, mass surveillance of patients and doctors. And it's it's actually pretty much the same mechanism that the DEA and the NSA used to get phone companies to give them all those records. So hopefully we'll see this uh, this court challenge actually be successful and we'll be absolutely reporting on any more developments. This is this is so outrageous. If we have any Texas listeners out there, get outraged. Like, write, write to your city uh, or your local elected officials immediately. Uh, your rights as a patient have been violated. So moving on to our weekly forecast... Um, this is a fun one for any of our Reddit listeners, which I feel like we have a couple out there. Um, so next Wednesday, September 23rd, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition and SSDP are teaming up for a Reddit AMA featuring Baltimore, former Baltimore City Police Officer Michael Wood. Um, and this particular police officer, Michael Wood, gained a lot of media attention earlier this summer after posting a series of tweets following the Freddie Gray protests. Um in which he revealed real-life examples of police corruption and brutality that he not only witnessed while he was on the force, but sometimes participated in as well. Um, His tweets were retweeted thousands of times, and he was interviewed um, about the corruption that he saw uh, while he served with the Baltimore Police Department. So he'll be available um, during this Reddit AMA to answer any questions you have about being a whistleblower in the Baltimore Police Department, misuses of police force that he uh, either witnessed or participated in, and his personal and professional interactions with the war on drugs. So there's a Facebook event that you can check out, and of course, uh, we'll post a link to that on our website. Uh, But if you want to look it up yourselves, it's Michael Wood Reddit AMA presented by Leap and SSDP. And of course, that event will include details for the AMA as it gets closer. All right, sounds great. Definitely looking forward to uh, checking that out myself. And so uh, for our other forecast is actually one week from today, which was uh, Sunday, September 20th. People all over the world will be holding events as part of the Psilocybin Day of Action. So this is being organized by the 920 Coalition, which is a group of drug policy organizations and nonprofits that are seeking to raise awareness about the medical uses of psilocybin, which is the main ingredient in magic mushrooms. 
SSDP is a member of this coalition, so 13 chapters are hosting events at their college campuses, and many non-student organizations are participating as well. If you want to support medical research and fix the, the draconian laws that are currently surrounding psilocybin and magic mushrooms, you can check out 920coalition.org to participate in an event, learn more, and get some good information to share with your friends and family next week. All right, well, that's a wrap for this seg- uh, this week's weekly news and forecast. And while we're always following news about the drug war, there's so much happening that it's hard to keep track of it all. So if you see any good news stories or hear about an upcoming event that you'd like us to know about, send it to us on social media or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And we may include it in next week's show. And now for a shout out to one of our favorite nonprofits, Flex Your Rights. Flex Your Rights aims to educate the public about how basic constitutional protections apply during encounters with law enforcement. Not surprisingly, given their mission, Flex Your Rights has been especially active recently in light of the events involving Sandra Bland's arrest. Unlike other advocacy organizations such as SSDP or Normal, Flex Your Rights is not chapter-based. Instead, its focus is on creating and distributing media and materials that explain individuals' legal rights during a police encounter. This includes the feature-length films Busted, The Citizen's Guide to Surviving Police Encounters, and 10 Rules for Dealing with Police. The Flex Your Rights YouTube channel has more than 35 million views and 125,000 subscribers. Flex was founded in 2002 and is based in Washington, D.C., to learn more about Flex Your Rights, visit their website, www.flexyourrights.org. Now it's time for the drug of the month, where we dive into the background, science, history, and current trends surrounding a different drug each month. September's drug is nitrous oxide, and last week we brought you a quick introduction to what exactly nitrous oxide is, where it comes from, and how it's used. Now it's time to look at the science of nitrous, how it interacts with the human body, the effects that make it useful in medicine and recreation, and some of its potential dangers. So as we discussed in last week's episode, nitrous oxide is a colorless gas that's inhaled by users, typically using a whipped cream canister or a balloon filled up directly from a tank when we're talking about recreational use. It's classified as a dissociative anesthetic, which means it can make users feel a bit detached from both the environment and even themselves. This is very different from a hallucinogen, which alters your senses and can make you perceive things that aren't there or interpret sensory inputs much differently. Interestingly, for such a widely used drug, we actually don't know a lot about nitrous oxide's pharmacological mechanisms of action. When inhaled, nitrous actually doesn't combine with the hemoglobin in your blood, but just travels by itself through your bloodstream and is then excreted, as is from your lungs when you exhale. This is a pretty quick process, as the biological half-life of nitrous is about 5 minutes, and your body doesn't really convert it into anything. The vast majority of it's still in your breath when you exhale. 
While we don't know all of its mechanisms, it has been shown that nitrous directly, directly modulates things called ligand-gated ion channels, which is a type of protein that opens and closes to allow certain ions, like charged sodium, potassium, or calcium, to pass through a membrane and deliver an electrical signal. The analgesic, meaning painkilling, effects of nitrous oxide are caused mainly by its interactions with the endogenous opioid system, meaning it acts in a very similar, albeit less pronounced, way to opiates like morphine. Studies have shown that people who build up a tolerance to morphine after taking it over a long period of time actually also develop a tolerance to nitrous, so you'll feel a lot less of an effect if you're taking opiates regularly. As for nitrous oxide's euphoric effects, that's due to it releasing dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, a small region at the lower front part of the brain. Unlike most other drugs that cause the release of dopamine, such as cocaine and morphine, there's been some research that shows nitrous oxide doesn't have the same level of reinforcement effects, meaning it doesn't cause craving to the same extent. This effect seems to vary across species, with mice having no reinforcement, monkeys having some, and humans having a bit more. This means that nitrous oxide can become a drug of abuse, but it's still not to the same extent as drugs like cocaine or morphine. All of this has led nitrous to be used as a relatively safe, low-risk anesthetic, which is why it's so common in dentist offices. Since it kills pain while also putting the patient at ease, it's ideal for things like pulling teeth or other small dental procedures. When used in this setting, doctors will typically attach an apparatus to the patient's nose, delivering a combination of nitrous oxide and oxygen through a hose. This is done to make sure that the brain receives enough oxygen to continue operating, as breathing in only nitrous can lead to asphyxiation and serious injury. Since the effects are so short-lasting, only about 5 minutes or so, doctors can keep a small amount of the drug flowing, or reapply it in small doses throughout the procedure. Modern devices also only release gas when the patient inhales, rather than continuously pushing it out, as that would run the risk of filling up the room with nitrous oxide and affecting the people operating. And this actually brings us to some of the risks associated with nitrous use, as one of the biggest is poor ventilation. Nitrous oxide, when used responsibly, is quite safe, but there have been some cases of serious injuries because of it. Sometimes people do stupid things like fill a bag up with nitrous and put it over their head, or get a large tank and release a huge quantity of it into a room or tent, possibly even just taking a lot of hits in quick succession. This can cause brain damage and other issues, since you need an ample amount of oxygen to survive. And although nitrous oxide does include oxygen atoms, they're not available in your body the same way that standalone oxygen is. The other most serious risk comes from the method of administration. Since nitrous oxide is in tanks is highly pressurized and incredibly cold, trying to inhale it directly from the tank can burn your skin or even tear your mouth or lungs from the incredible rush of air. Because of this, a good harm reduction strategy is to fill balloons from the tank in order to let the gas warm up to room temperature before inhaling which also then lets you control the flow very easily by holding the balloon's opening. Taking a standard dose can also cause dizziness, so it's recommended that the user be sitting down, as taking nitrous while standing up can cause you to lose your balance and fall. This can actually be one of the most dangerous parts of nitrous oxide use, as there has actually been a few documented deaths of people falling a great distance or hitting their head after using the drug. Nitrous oxide can be psychologically addictive, so it's best to use it in moderation. But contrary to popular perception, this is actually quite rare. While nitrous is sometimes called hippie crack, this is much more due to its short-lasting effects rather than its addictive potential. So while there's much, much more to it, that's our overview of the science of nitrous oxide. Next week, we'll go over the drug's history and how laws and societal attitudes have changed over time.
All right, everybody, now it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring in some top experts to talk in depth about the biggest issues facing us in the world of drugs today. So for this episode, we're going to be talking all about marijuana, specifically legal marijuana, and how companies and governments can try to understand and forecast these newly legal markets, plus how they interact with the black market that continues to exist in varying degrees in different states. And so today we're really lucky to be joined by Andrew Livingston, who's a policy analyst at Vicente Cedarburg, and Adam Orens, the managing director of the Marijuana Policy Group and BBC Research and Consulting. So thank you both for coming on. Thanks very much. Happy Thanks. to be here. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Michelle. So just to start us off, can um, taking turns, can you explain to us uh, what forecasting entails exactly? Go for it, Andrew. Yeah, so it really depends upon what sort of market you're looking at. So there's a couple of different ways to analyze markets, but uh, I'll break it down into you know two different medical types of markets and just the adult use market. Um, so there's two different sorts of medical markets, the way that I classify them. There's kind of really restrictive markets that only allow for certain sorts of uh, debilitating conditions, um, you know, cancer and epilepsy and maybe glaucoma and others. And then there are um, more open medical marijuana markets that allow for um, chronic pain and nausea and other symptoms, not just disease profiles. So there's two different ways to do those markets. Um, the more restrictive one you use in epidemiological analysis. And then for a um, in more open market, you look... And so actually to back up for a second, epidemiological analysis, for to explain that to our listeners a little bit, essentially figuring out how many people have those diseases in that state. Yeah, exactly, Sam. So thanks for catching me on uh, on the jargon. <laughs> I can be prone, so please do step in when something I say uh, you know isn't in layman terms. So an epidemiological analysis is kind of a standard um, public health research approach to look at the prevalence of certain uh, diseases or certain conditions within a population. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm looking at is really how many different people have cancer or have HIV and AIDS or glaucoma or ALS in a state. And then I look at other states um, with kind of similar uh, disease profiles that say how many patients register. And you look at what the likelihood of someone who does qualify for register with the state. So that can give you a rough idea of you know how many patients are likely is going to be. And for as I was mentioning, for the more open states, you look at a patient to population uh, percentage, and you take that by looking at a variety of other states. Um, you can also break it down by you know how many patients are signing up uh, under the different age groups, so you, you adjust for age demographics. So those are kind of the two different ways you do medical marijuana market analysis. Um, for the adult use market, it's really trying to look at you know all the existing data that we have, which is really just Colorado and Washington. Uh, so you can forecast it based on um, differential rates in the number of past month marijuana consumers, and that's reported by some federal government surveys. Um, and you can adjust that by different states. You can also look at the population differences and try to adjust there. But again, we don't have that much um, information on marijuana consumer dynamics. And you know, the states are offering things about how much people are selling and how many edible products are being sold, but it's hard to know how many consumers are actually purchasing those products. And so is that also, so some of the big differences between these medical markets and adult use markets is that people in the medical ones, at least in many states, have to you know register with the state, and there's certain limits in terms of the amount that they can purchase per per month or, or per week. 
And so is that something that the state is actually tracking? And is that data available to uh, to, to dispensaries and other business owners? Or uh, and, and is that you're able to get a lot more data than adult use where it's essentially, you know, kind of like a liquor store model that just anybody can come in? Or is it a lot easier to do medical? You know, it's not actually. Uh I do a, a little bit of the same uh, type of analysis, um, but you know, a lot of the states don't report a lot about the medical patients that are registered. Um, you know, you get a little bit of information. You'll get age, you'll get sex, um, but you won't really get much more about that. I think there are a lot of privacy rules in both uh, in the legal states that have been baked into the legislation that really protect the consumer from the state or the uh, um, the centers collecting any information that they don't volunteer. So while that's great for the consumers, it, it does provide a lot of challenges for researchers and for others trying to get information on these markets. And one other thing I will say, just going back to one thing that Andrew said before about permissive states versus uh, states that are that are uh, difficult to get medical uh, um, uh, approval. Uh, the the difficult states usually have a list of diseases and conditions that someone must have, and the permissive states use symptoms to define what uh, marijuana can treat. And you know, in my opinion, I think it's a much better system because marijuana doesn't cure diseases; it treats symptoms. In my opinion, those states have it lined up better uh, in their thinking and their philosophy of a registry. So this takes us to our next question. We've kind of talked about the differences between analyzing these three different types of markets, um, but you're both based in Colorado, the state with the most sophisticated legal marijuana market in the country and arguably the world uh, since Amsterdam's, which has been older, um, is still not technically legal. So um, in your experience um, and opinion, is it easier to analyze Colorado's market than, for example, um, another state like Connecticut where the medical market is younger, or California where it is older but not nearly as regulated by the state? So that really depends upon the state agency and how much information it's providing. Um, so there's some states which, you know, really won't provide any information at all, partially because they don't collect it. So for instance, California, its lack of a regulatory system does result in um, a very hard market to analyze because we don't have any uh, data being collected and no agency to report it. Um, some states, you know, like Connecticut, for instance, only will report a very small amount of data, um, you know, how many patients there are and, and some more of the, um, the patient side of you know their their age and sex and things like that, um, and then some states report an enormous amount of data. So Washington State's adult use industry, um, they report per month per license sales and tax collected. So you can essentially determine uh, the revenues of every single business specifically within the state. Then they also report weekly volumes on different. Uh, concentrates and, and solid edible products and liquid edible products. So it's just a treasure trove of data. Um, Colorado provides a lot of data as well. Um, 
but it's not necessarily how new the state is. It's how much the state agency is willing to report. So it really has nothing to do with like the sophistication of the law or how the law is drafted or how evolved it is. It's really much more like how transparent the, the agency is. Yeah, transparent or like committed to collecting that data. The agency um, responsible is right. You know, yeah. Rochelle. You know, Rochelle. Uh, um, it's really here in Colorado. There's a lot of discretion that the marijuana enforcement division has. Um, and it's up to their discretion as to how much they want to share. Um, and it's not really baked into any of the, the regulations at all or in any of the enabling legislation, a data reporting process. Mm. But I will tell you one thing about Colorado is um, they do have a seed to sale, very robust seed to sale tracking system that uh, we, my, my firm will be signing a contract with them in, in about a week or two uh, to update our study that we did in 2004. Uh, but this time we'll be able to really mine the metric data. And I'm really looking forward to uh, what we find in there because we're and having year of data. Can you just explain what metric is to people outside of Colorado or outside of the industry who aren't familiar with that term? Sure. Um, Metric is the name of the state of Colorado's uh, marijuana tracking system. It's commonly called a seed to sale tracking system, um, where there are RFID tags on every plant uh, that's in the ground right now, uh, and also on packages of uh, intermediate and finished marijuana products as they move around the state. So the state really knows where marijuana is moving across the state and they require it to satisfy the requirements of the federal government and the coal memorandum on the state so that they are minimizing diversion and they always can uh, hold the licensees accountable for where the inventory is. So that's what that's what we use and also um, it is a tremendous market information tool as well as an enforcement tool. Okay, very cool. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, and, and so for Andrew, I mean, I know that you've been involved uh, in the marijuana industry in Colorado for, for a long time now, even since before it was legalized for adult use, because uh, I know you're working on the Amendment 64 campaign, and now that you're working with Vicente Cedarberg to implement it and study it. so. How has the, the legal industry there evolved since uh, legalization back in 2012? Has a lot changed or has it pretty much uh, been the same for the whole time? I would say definitely a lot has changed. Um, we've seen a huge growth in the number of um, edible products sold as well as the variety of edible products on the market. Um, and we've seen really just many more uh, cultivators come online and businesses expand. And I've been hearing stories from people that opened up early on in 2014 and some people said that they sold more in the first month than they had sold for you know the previous year or that you know the more they had sold more in the first three months than they had you know ever sold before so oh, we were, wow. see, we're seeing a lot of growth from um, some of those businesses particularly you know maybe some of the smaller mom-and-pop medical facilities that were able to open up and happen to be in like a really good area um, you know, it changes some of the dynamics of how profitable your store is. Mm -hmm. If it's a medical-only store and you're in a 16th Street Mall, which, you know, for those outside of Colorado is and outside of Denver is kind of the tourist area, you know, most 
consumers aren't going, most medical patients aren't going to go into a tourist area to get their medicine. You know, but tourists are, are already going to be there. So the profitability of, of those different stores can increase rapidly. Um, we are seeing some new places open up as well, Aurora and others, and just greater sophistication. Some, you know, bigger actors who weren't working well getting, you know, pushed out of the market. Um, not as much consolidation as maybe people feared. Um, but we're seeing lots of changes. A lot of actors from Colorado exploring opportunities in other states as well. And actually, is this something that you guys assist with when people um, are looking to explore into other states? Like, what what are they looking for exactly? If I mean, if they got if they approach you? Yeah, absolutely. So, Rochelle, first of all, great pitch. Uh, Vicente Cedarberg, we do do applications um, for marijuana business clients around the country. Um, so one of the things that I do with a lot of those clients is look at what is, you know, the market potential is going to be in another state. Um, and when I do that, and I'm looking at a state that hasn't ever opened yet, such as Maryland, I'm looking at lots of dynamics and information and bits of data um, that come from other states around the country. Uh, when I describe, you know, how I'm doing market analysis, because we don't have really good solid years of consumer data that I can you know, know is going to be representative of a population in another state that hasn't even opened yet. What I'm really doing is quilting. I'm, you know, taking patchworks, pieces of information from one state and another state and another piece, and I'm tying it together um, using, you know, logical assumptions and, and math to determine what estimated revenue for a business is going to be in a, a state that has never sold marijuana legally. I've seen one of those quilts. They're really beautiful. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the the crux of some of the work that Andrew and I do. It's um, it's it's really difficult to project demand, and and we've done studies in states that are just opening medical, like Andrew was alluding to. We're doing some work now in Alaska that's just opening recreational, um, and there's really no precedent there because they didn't have a strong medical dispensary system like Colorado did. And so Alaska is going to be uh, a very interesting case, um, just also because it's such a unique landscape and uh, economy, but also um, it's a state that didn't have a very solid medical system. So can you can you talk a little more, Adam, about the uniqueness of um, Alaska's uh, cannabis culture and economy, actually, because this past year, um, before I um, before I departed from the Marijuana Policy Project and joined uh, VS, I actually was a legislative analyst in um, in charge of guiding uh, a lobbying team through the implementation process for legalization in Alaska. So I got to work very closely with like the legislators and policymakers out there. Um, and I thought it was like really fascinating to see how their uh, specific culture um, being so isolated from other states is like different and fascinating from um, many other markets we've seen so far. You know, I, I, I don't exactly know what you're trying to lead me to, but let me try and guess. I think <laughs> to me, um, Alaska would have a, a do-it-yourself spirit uh, and a home-grown spirit, I think, that could be stronger than other states um, and other places where it's just easier to find other people to sell a uh, product to you. Um, and I also think they probably have a lot of uh, product also shipped in or historically did from Canada, perhaps. 
perhaps in even Washington State and climes that are uh, more warmer and hospitable to the plant. Yeah, so to add in a little bit of legal history for Alaska here, um, there was a Supreme Court uh, case in Alaska, I think it was in the 1970s. Um, You can look this up, it's known as the, the Raven case. And essentially what it did is because Alaska is a special sort of uh, state that has really strong personal privacy protections within its state constitution, um, you know, a smart um, marijuana you know, defense lawyer essentially you know, thought he could take this case to the Supreme Court and win it, and he did. And it, they established uh, at, at the state level in you know, the understanding of their constitution that you could grow a small number of plants in your home. And so because of that, you know, cannabis has been legal for personal use in one's home in Alaska for decades. So, you know, you're absolutely right. That independent spirit combined with, you know, a legal or semi-legal, depending on how you want to look at it, um, home cultivation market really is going to provide some interesting um, market players as well as genetics into um, Alaska's market. You know, um, I, I had a question. Is it is it now, Andrew? Uh, I seem to remember that case. Is is marijuana use protected under a privacy uh, notion or a privacy protection? Is that how it's built? Yeah. Out decision. Exactly. It's a personal privacy protections within Alaska's constitution for one's own home. So you guys did an excellent job of reading my mind. Sorry for posing the question kind of backwards. Um, I'm gonna like I'm gonna like let Sam take the next one so he can ask a more straightforward question. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and and so I mean, speaking of this, I mean, in Alaska, that there's this incredibly strong. I mean, I don't know if you. I guess it isn't technically a black market since home grow has been legal there for a long time, but just say an unregulated market. Um, and I mean, in Colorado, kind of the same thing. There's kind of a gray market going on with uh, home grow being legal for. A while and there's still a lot of you know there's no selling in between people but they're sharing among friends and, and so what have you seen in terms of once these markets get above board legal and there's these businesses that are actually uh, selling retail marijuana how does that affect the black market in, in Colorado do you think the the black market's still alive and well has it taken a serious hit I assume it's not completely gone but what's kind of the status there well, um, I'll take it first, Andrew, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, too. Um, you know, I think the black, first of all, the black market is still here. Mm-hmm. Get that straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, but I think the, the retail market, definitely, the regulated retail market definitely had an impact on it. Um, but I believe it's more with casual users. The more casual the user, the more likely you are to be to not have an ingrained, uh, already pre-existing supply channel in the black market. Um, and so you're more likely to adopt the ease uh, and convenience of the, the retail market. But, you know, I think that long term, long term, if prices continue to go down in the regulated market, I think it will accomplish uh, what it set out to do and, and really minimize the black market. But I think we need to continue to see prices come down more so. Yeah, I would agree on that. A lot of what you have to look at is you know, your price quality ratio. Um, so 
if we were able to, you know, actually mathematically determine cannabis quality, and you can't because it's at this point very amorphous and it's it's really subjective. Um, but if you were able to map that out, you'd look at, you know, a curve, more expensive, uh, you know, high quality marijuana is going to be on one side and kind of inexpensive, low quality marijuana is going to be on the other. I think that in Colorado, we've really seen some of the economies of scale be able to beat out the black market on that lower end of the price quality ratio. Um, you know, it's hard to make any money trying to sell a $100 ounce. Um, so $100 ounce would be um, $1,600 a pound. And the illicit market price outside of Colorado is just much, much higher than that. Um, and so really, you know, I don't think that even those heavy consumers on the low end are purchasing. But anyone who's higher up, it's hard to, you know, you can get great cannabis from establishments in Colorado, from the legal regulated market. Um, but in general- In your personal experience? Um, yes, often, you know, in my personal experience. But what I also know is that some of the best cannabis that's grown in Colorado is grown by home cultivators and small scale cultivators that have been growing in a you know, confined area for the same, you know, they have it dialed in over a decade or more, and they really know how to produce that quality, quality product. Because uh, it's just easier to, you know, have one single person that monitors 10 plants versus, you know, managing a team of 100 people, you know, to monitor 50,000 plants. And unsurprisingly, right, this is kind of this kind of replicates the existing alcohol industry where there are like mass producers who create uh, cheaper, lower quality products like your Bud Lights or whatever. And and then there are still like specialized microbrews um, that produce more specialized, higher quality, small batch products. Yeah. And if you would look at the size of a marijuana business in, in Colorado versus, you know, a craft brewery in Colorado, Almost all of these businesses are, you know, the size of a mid to small size craft brewery. You know, we don't have anyone who's a Budweiser or a, well, I'll say Coors because I'm in Colorado. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's important to look at really those size. Almost everyone's a craft right now. Um, but it is like, you know, maybe if you have a friend who's really, really good at home, home brewing, he's going to make a better beer than you'll be able to buy anywhere, you know, better mm -hmm. than, you know, what you can get at uh you know, Great Divide or, you know, better than get at Sierra Nevada. But, you know, in general, those products are just going to be really good. Um, and there is a lot of really good cannabis on the market. It's just going to be interesting because, as Adam said, some people just have their ways ingrained. And so it's going to take time in order to change those habits. Because if you've been purchasing from your friend for, you know, five to 10, you know, 20 years, what's going to change that? Mm -hmm. You know, I think I heard a lot of things in that last conversation that are kind of interesting to me. You know, I really think that eventually cannabis is going to be another consumer good, just like alcohol, as you were comparing it to. And it's going to have its, you know, artisan producers. And, you know, you're going to think about where to buy your cannabis, potentially, uh, a lot like where you buy your liquor at, you know, and, and in Colorado, we have this vertical integration. So the cannabis itself is really tied with the storefront, but in other states where they don't require that, you know, there can be, and I bet we'll see very soon some real cultivator driven cannabis brands, just like a uh, distiller 
brand of whiskey, like Jack Daniels, mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, JMP or whatever. And, uh, and cannabis can and probably will get there someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is going to be really exciting as this industry gets a lot more legitimized in the public eyes. Uh, and especially once federal legalization eventually comes down, that we'll be able to start seeing that sort of uh, much larger brand identity going on. And, and I just also wanted to circle back because you had you t- had both touched on this a little bit in your answers, but uh, about the recent huge drops in, in pricing in Colorado. Uh, so we had actually um, requested a couple uh, questions on uh, our drugs on Reddit. Uh, so we've got a couple of uh, kind of guest questions here. Uh, but this is my first AMA. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> We're developing a new AMA format, basically, where it's mm-hmm. live. <laughs> Ask these drug Reddit. experts anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, one redditor, uh, unspecial K eight oh five, good name, uh, is asking how far you anticipate this dropping. Will it continue dropping and end up somewhere more reasonable? And as kind of a follow up there too, uh, another redditor, uh, comfy queso. Uh, is asking how the legal market has affected prices on the black market. Has the existence of this uh, market that's uh, totally legal uh, driven down prices on the black market, or have those functioned kind of independently? Um, well, uh, let's take. I'll take your first one, which was how far do we think prices will go down? Mm-hmm. Um, well, they they will never go below the cost of production. So that's your floor right there. That makes sense. Um, But I think, um, and then plus a little for transportation and the retailer and all, you know, just the cost to bring that bud from a plant to the store shelf. Um, But, you know, I think there's probably still a little bit, and I'm not going to be exact on my answer, excuse me. I think there's going to be a little bit of room for prices to continue to move downward towards that cost of production because I don't think we're there yet. Um, taxes will always pay, play into it, um, but uh, um, and so I, I do think that we still have a little ways to go for it to come down, um, but we're not there yet. Yeah, you know, I'm going to take on the second question. Um, how does the black market and the um, regulated market price vary? So this is fascinating. Uh, I wish we had better information about what illicit market pricing is over time. Um, you know, we do have a site, thepriceofweed.com. So maybe that's an interesting thing. Maybe I'll try to run some uh, scales by looking at you know Colorado from 2014 uh, till now, both on the illegal market, which is uh, reported, uh, it's, it's anonymous self-reporting. That's what that website is. Uh, to what the legal market is, so that could be interesting. But they are absolutely uh, you know substitutes. So they offer a similar sort of product. Um, you know, you can buy an eighth of weed on the illegal market and buy an eighth of weed on the legal market. So it's really which which sort of market you're going to go to. You know, what I've heard all the time, uh, particularly in California, where they've got a lot more, you know, less regulated of a system, and it's more likely that you'll have um, illicitly cultivated cannabis um, come into their medical market. But you'd always see that the prices would drop significantly in the late fall after the outdoor Northern California harvest would be done. And because of that, um, really the prices couldn't compete in the same way. Um, you know, I also heard it um, talking with old school growers in Colorado about how you know they were making thirty five hundred dollars a pound, or you know making really you know thirty uh, you know, three thousand dollars a pound 
And then 2008, 2009 came around in Colorado and, and just that much more cannabis started being cultivated um, because the medical market started to open and flourish. And all of a sudden they dropped down to you know $2,600 a pound, $2,200 a pound. Um, so that's significant. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's definitely going to affect it because if you're a consumer um, and one price is way more expensive than the other, it's gonna drive you to that market that's less expensive. And in many ways, you know, the laws of economics, um, when it comes to human behavior, are, are like physics. So you know, things shift and adjust, and they'll have to adjust in order to try to get the consumers they're looking for. The race to the bottom, I think, uh, which I think is good for consumers. Um, and I think black market uh, producers have had to really press their prices, too, to keep their product competitive against uh, um, a channel where you have more guarantees of safety and more selection to go to mm-hmm. that they have to really a uh, continue to embrace the network they've already developed of consumers and then B um, they really got to keep their prices down if they're going to compete with that so I think they are competing um, and whatever really happens is going to be a win for consumers. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the the additional non-price factors that might lead people to the legal legal market too, um, as far as consistency, predictability of the product, and you know just safety of interacting in that transaction. Um, to pivot a little bit away from black market um, and pricing. Um, so Colorado just released your report, Adam, on the equivalency of smoked versus edible marijuana, which um, is the first report of this kind. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, it was it was a very fun and challenging project to do. Um, the state, um, as part of uh, uh, a piece of legislation um, in 2014, required uh, a study to trace the equivalencies between flower marijuana, concentrated marijuana, and infused marijuana edible products. Um, and uh, it, in Colorado, we have um, purchase limits uh, at the cash register in a dispensary where a Colorado resident can buy an ounce of marijuana, a flower marijuana, or its equivalent. And, and this, is for, this is for um, adult use. Yes, correct. This is not, thank you for making that distinction, that it is, is not for medical at all. This is only for adult use. Um, and so up until now, um, there have been just real informal limits. I think there have been some gaps in the legislation where um, they did not know the equivalent of uh, um, wax or shatter concentrates to an ounce of marijuana or how many hundred milligram edibles is the equivalent to an ounce of flower marijuana and so what our study did was provide a few different ways that the state could think about connecting those dots through equivalency and I believe they'll use it one for that example I just gave for per purchase limits but then for um, overall market information. Right now they report sales in weight of flour and then units of edibles, but they don't, they can't, they don't have a common denominator 
to know how much marijuana was produced mm. and how much is demanded. Um, and this study will really serve to fill in those cracks. Um, and so we did it. Um, we interviewed a lot of producers and processors about their extraction methods and production methods. And then we also leveraged that seed to sale tracking system metric um, to get the data for the report. But um, it has a lot of great information on potency trends, also on THC uh, um, composition uh, and of uh, ways that the body interacts with marijuana in, in inhaled or in uh, ingested forms. Interesting. Thank you very much. And for our listeners, we'll be sure to send up a, uh, a, a link to this full report on uh, the episode post on our website at thisweekindrugs.org so you can uh, read it yourself. But I do also just have a couple more questions on it. So, I mean, essentially, edibles have been so much in the news lately in terms of uh, people having too much and it causing different problems, um, people at violence or even suicide in, in certain cases. Um, with these, how with, with your report, essentially, what kind of conclusions did you draw about, say, the safety of edibles in comparison to smoked marijuana or, uh, or what kind of implications do, do, did this have in terms of uh, the safety side of things? Yeah, absolutely. So one of, we, one of the equivalencies we calculated was called pharmacokinetic equivalency. And mm-hmm. that uh, is a fancy medical word uh, to describe, a term that describes how your body interacts with a substance that you put in um, and how it travels through your bloodstream and how it gets absorbed in your brain. Um, And so we did some research in medical journals and medical literature that showed us the difference in how the body absorbs inhaled marijuana versus ingested marijuana. And, you know, what we found was there is a lot more THC that gets absorbed through, through the bloodstream into the brain than uh, uh, when it's inhaled. When it's inhaled, there's a spike of THC in the bloodstream, but your kidneys are cleaning it as fast as it comes in. Um, With an edible, uh, the THC is absorbed through the liver, um, and other metabolites are created in the liver, um, and then it it absorbs slower, um, but it, it allows more of this THC, especially because of its metabolite through the liver to be absorbed through the brain. So it is stronger. Um, it, you know, one uh, um, milligram of, of uh, flour is not the same, smoked is not the same as ingested. Um, and there's a lot stronger effect in different effects. Um, but I'll also say that everybody is different in the way that their body interacts with this substance. Um, especially with edibles, but I think it's the same for inhalation. Uh, and, uh, you know, one should always tread cautiously with those edibles. All right. Yeah, thank you. And um, so we're running a little short on time, so we're going to ask one more question uh, since this was the highest voted one on our post on Reddit. And th- this one's from Redditor MDMA Zing, which I also really like this name. And so... Uh, so why, why isn't there a, a standard in, in testing the cannabinoid content of, of marijuana in the legal market? And, and why is it, we've seen some reports um, 
about, you know, independent testing being done, whether it's by journalists or other groups of comparing what's on the label to what kind of test results they get. And there being a lot of variability there. So why, why does it vary so much on these uh, different testings of different samples for, for what's present and what's on the label? Yeah, so I'll jump in on, on that one for a second. It's really just because manufacturing of cannabis is difficult. Um, it's really hard to get the exact amount in each every edible. It takes a lot of um, standard operating procedures that you have to tune and hone over time because um, the products can be very different. And, you know, this is a new lab science as well. All right, so this brings us to the end of our uh, chat today. And we always like to wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make positive change. So if you could have our listeners do one thing right now, what would you ask them to do? Sure. Um, I would say to be a responsible and honorable actor uh, in, in our new and wonderful marijuana market, whether you're a retailer, a grower, or just a consumer, um, I think uh, we've proved to the world that uh, this can be done, um, so let's keep it going. Very good, I love awesome. it. So thank you both so much for coming on to today's show and speaking with us. This has been Andrew Livingston, Policy Analyst at Vicente Cedarberg, and Adam Orens, Managing Director of the Marijuana Policy Group and BBC Research and Consulting. Thank you both, Andrew and Adam. Thank you, this has been fun. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and we'd like to thank Andrew Livingston and Adam Orens once again for joining us for the discussion. Be sure to tune in next week for our usual rundown of the news, a dive into the history of nitrous oxide, and a talk with Eric Sterling, the godfather of drug policy reform, on some highlights from his decades in the movement. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show and who's behind it, links to our guests and their organizations, and a lot more. So please remember to stay sensible and we'll see you next week.